Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, work, coffeebar.com. Hello and welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 182. And my guest this week is Anthony Anzaldo. He is the guitar player of the band Ceremony. He's also playing in Cold Cave. He releases solo music as well as books through his own press, which is called First Letter Press. And he runs a festival called Homesick, which just wrapped up uh, the weekend before we recorded this. So we catch up on Homesick. But of the many reasons I asked Anthony to come on, I wanted to talk to him about the upcoming Ceremony Ronert Park full album play show that they're about to do this Saturday, February 24th at the Hollywood Palladium. Um, I'm excited to go to this show. I'm also very excited to see Infest, who is uh, the direct support band on it, play at the Hollywood Palladium. Like that in and of itself is an experience to see. Other bands include Soul Search, Gouge Away, and Blazing Eye. So if you're in the California area, you should come out to this if you haven't got a ticket yet. It's going to be uh, one to remember, that's for sure. Also, I want to let you know if you happen to be new here, that there is always a bonus episode with every episode. And you can hear that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. The guest always answers questions that were submitted by subscribers. If you yourself would like to ask questions to upcoming guests, you can sign up for uh, the $7 and up tier. But if you would just simply like to hear all of the bonus material, plus all of the other cool bonus stuff we do over there, uh, you can sign up for only three bucks. And uh, I do radio episodes every weekend. So you'll be able to hear that. And um, there's a Discord channel. We're always hanging out over there. Lots of fun stuff going on. It helps support the show, helps support all of this. And it would mean a lot. Another way you can support is by just telling your friends about it or subscribing on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you are listening to this. And if you have an extra moment to leave a positive rating and review, that always means a lot. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with the handsome, the sexy the ultra-talented, it's Anthony Anzaldo. What's up, Anthony? It is so nice to see you. How are you? 
I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm I'm good. Uh, this is an episode I've been looking forward to. You're somebody that um, I know would be a good chat. No pressure. But, uh... <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. I, I feel really off today. So Do you? No. No, I just want you to sweat a little bit. No, well, um, I mean, if it's bad, it's your fault. It's certainly never the yeah, host's yeah, fault. Yeah, yeah. You've you're batting a thousand, a hundred. What's the ref? What's the what's you know the what's funny reference? Is I think one time to a very sports friend, maybe it was Clayton, maybe it was my friend Mike. I said batting a hundred, and they were like, "That's not really that good." I'm like, "Oh, it's batting a thousand. That's what I want to say." Yeah, yeah. Which is a which is kind of a lame lame terminology. Yeah, hundred is universal. That's what I'm saying. Let's just divide whatever metric y'all are using by 10, you know, and then we could just make it an even 100 and then it's just, it's simple. Come on. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I figured we would just quickly do a catch up. Um, this last weekend, you just had your festival, Homesick. Uh, let's do yeah. a recap. How was it? How did it go? It was incredible. Um, the vibe at both shows... Um, was just so special uh the you know it's hard it's hard for me and i don't know how objective i could answer that question because obviously i want it to do really well and i'm i'm really hard on i I put myself under a lot of pressure because you know i'm not a promoter or agent by trade you know um i i just happen to um be in love with the world and the subculture and the you know subversive nature of the place that we come from and i um want to and i just have a a curator's and creator's brain so that's why i put on i put on the event but i say that because i'm not a born i'm not a promoter and I all these people who are playing all these acts are essentially peers of mine. Right. They're people like you, you know, and I have a personal relationship with a lot of most bands that have ever played Homesick and I feel pressure for them to have a good time and for them to leave the event think um with them thinking they made the right call with flying out and playing the show. And it's a big ask of the audience to come to such a diverse event um but um all that to say even though i don't think i could be fully objective i think it went really well the um the the reaction to every band was was so was was incredible i'm happy i'm happy to hear that i mean there's a million takeaways i probably could you know mention from my years past playing your festival we've played it twice and one of the things that I remember, which is something that I never talked to you about, because why would I? But um, one of these things where I remember one of the bands showing up that you did not have a prior relationship with at the time mm -hmm. and how concerned you were out of just wanting to make sure that they had everything they needed. You were so appreciative of them being there. And it struck me as like, oh, he genuinely cares about making sure everybody is happy and comfortable and like ready to just have a good time today, which is yeah. something that I think any band on any festival is ever kind of hoping for, you know? And sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so it was one of these things that I, I remember just like catching that out of like the corner of my eye to be like, 
Anthony's the right person to do something like this. Well, I, I appreciate that. And um, there are times where I wish I could turn that off or at least turn the dial down on yeah. that part of me a little bit because it, it is my the biggest point of anxiety with putting on the fest. Is that everybody's but I just, okay and ha- has what I they can't need. remove that. Yeah. yeah, I've been um I've been lucky enough to play um music in a somewhat professional or in a in a touring capacity for 20 years and um I I want I want to give you know all of these acts what I hope to receive when I when i do that so yeah. um i mean you've played enough festivals that it's like you you're lucky to know what it feels like to be on one that's good that treats you good and how totally. you want to also then pass that along to your own uh to your own experiences for other people of course how are you as a uh as a host like when you if you have people over are you the same type of person or is this someone that yeah you- oh i'm given you're getting especially if, if it's your first time you're gonna tour the house you're gonna tour the house <laughs> You're getting, you're getting water immediately. Yeah. You're getting asked for tea. We don't keep a lot of beverages in the house. I'm a, I'm a water, I'm a water and coffee boy. But yeah. if you need, if you need a V60, I got you. You know, I give you the rundown on the cats and how to, how to handle them. They're, they both have very different personalities. So you know, just, just a little info for you. Make sure there's candles in, in the living room and and in the and in the water closet, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, that's that's what I was curious of. If this is like a part of your personality, or is this, or if this is uh, just the homesick Anthony? But you strike me as as a as a host of all hosts. I think it's being. Um, I'm I'm one of six. I have okay. I have five other siblings. I have four yeah. younger sisters and an older brother, and I'm. Um, though not the oldest i'm 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 the second oldest but still in the middle and i think all of us all of us in the middle have this people pleasing mm. um part of our personality that's just like deeply ingrained from just living in a house of of seven people where you're just walking all over everybody all of the yeah. time and you're just oh you're always conscious of everybody else yeah, you learn what everybody's buttons are. So then you're basically navigating how to make sure everybody, especially if it's like even like in a family get together situation yeah. where there's more people that are from the outside coming in and how to best manage that and make sure everybody's comfortable. So yeah, I feel like it's just the amplified version of that in your life totally. now. Totally. Exactly. exactly. Um so I know duh, I know you're a bay person, but like where in the bay exactly were you from? I'm from uh, a town called Roner Park, California. Okay. Yep. Uh, it is about 45 minutes north of San Francisco. Um, it's in Sonoma County, which is uh, borders Napa County, so it's it's wine country adjacent. Yeah. Uh, but specifically, the town that we grew up in, that I grew up in, uh, Roner Park, is sort of a suburb of suburbs. It's in between. Uh, Petaluma, California, which is where the first homesick was at, at yep. the Phoenix Theater, um, historic town. And then just to the north of Roner Park is a town called Santa Rosa, which is uh, probably the most populated town city in um, in Sonoma County. So but we are in between those. And, th- you know, those are suburbs of, of San Francisco. And Roner Park is is just 
parks and schools and it is it is a caricature of um suburban lifestyle um we moved there when i was eight years old um we moved around a lot until then i was born in las vegas we moved we lived in detroit for a year we lived in omaha nebraska for a summer we lived um in a suburb of philadelphia um just over the bridge in new jersey uh for a year before moving to um before moving to the bay area was this like parents finding new jobs was this like a specific part of their job yeah my my dad was in record promotion um well he in vegas he was a radio dj he was an honor okay um and and vj uh because when mtv started it wasn't this immediate global success it was still you know television was still very territorial so there were um local there was a lot of local television that featured music videos and and they and each local region um each market as they say had their own you know crop of 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 uh vjs and my dad um my dad was one of those in las vegas in the in the mid to late 80s and then he got in, into a uh, record promotion so he started working for record labels um as a uh as a promo as a radio rep as they would call um and that's just that industry is very high turnover um sure. as i'm sure you've seen just being on different labels and um it's a it's an extremely high turnover business um so when he got the job to work at uh that at electra so that moved us from vegas to detroit okay um and then he got a job doing uh, working for mca which moved us to philly and then in philly uh a space in san francisco opened up so we, we moved from philly to um technically mount laurel new jersey uh no, well, not technically Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Lit- literally, I only make that distinction because people from Philadelphia would want to wring my neck for calling Mount Laurel, New Jersey, Philly. <laughs> sure. But it, it, yeah. yeah, but but that was but that was the the region that he was as- assigned. Um, sure. And so then we moved to the Bay, because um, Cal- because California was always the goal. In fact, moving to Vegas uh, from where my dad grew up in Omaha, he was just en route to L.A. He was moving to L.A stopped yeah. to see a friend in, in Vegas and was offered a job and then stayed up, ended up staying there for, you know, almost 10 years. Is that where um, your folks met in Vegas? Uh, no, they met in Omaha. Okay. Both, both sides of my, my, my mom and my dad are, are from, are from Nebraska. I don't um, know if we ever talked about that. My mom's from Nebraska as well. Where? Uh, a town called, called Norfolk, which is like North of Omaha. Like it's, it's like a small kind of farm town, but it's like 90 minutes North of omaha sure yeah. my mom is from a town called fremont nebraska which okay. is a um a suburb of of um of nebraska i don't have my nebraskan uh geography down super well but i would imagine that fremont is probably in route to, to norfolk, norfolk from yeah. from omaha yeah most like um, most like because that name is familiar i uh, last year was last year yeah obviously last year it's only february uh i did a i just i flew out to nebraska just to uh go see where my mom is buried i haven't been out there since she uh since we since we uh buried her ashes out there so i just like did like a solo trip and I, that name sounds familiar like it makes me think that i potentially drove through there that name is probably familiar. yeah yeah um, wow both yeah, nebraska how about that? Look descendants at us. look at yeah. us 
corn fed a couple of corn fed yeah. boys um, <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean that what was your dad doing for the, were, did he have different jobs for these labels yeah so i don't know how common this job is now given how much the record industry has changed and given how much radio has changed totally but um then each label had a uh, promotional uh promotional people radio reps as they would often be referred to as um and their job was to when the labels would be coming out with with new releases would go to radio stations and essentially pitch yeah. um the upcoming music and um you would sort of like negotiate there was a lot of because radio concerts were so um common then as well so it would be like you know i'll give you you know i'll I'll try and get you metallica at your show if you give me 60 ads or x amount of ads this week for this up-and-coming band um, yeah so i think now a label would probably have one person doing that for the whole country is my is my guess and um, based on a little because my 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 brother's in radio and that's just sort of was like the family business yeah. um was 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 radio um so my dad worked for electra in the detroit region doing that so when metallica came out with the black album in 1991 that's when my dad worked for electra so he had the he had detroit and the surround however you know um However, many the Midwest, was, basically, yeah. Yes, yeah, the upper, yeah, the northern Midwest, um, and it was his job to make sure he 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 tells a story that he got um, the first. I I can't remember the ex- exact number, but the first like 10, 10 of twelve ads for the Black Album in the country were um, were from him. I mean. I, I love my father and and I'm sure that's true. But I do uh <laughs> from what I could tell from by being around so many industry so many ra- industry people my whole life is that yeah. um a lot of credit gets taken. Oh, a lot sure. of credit. A lot of credit. <laughs> um I'm sure I'm sure every word is true if you're listening father. But um but yeah, uh so and then um he uh went to MCA and then had yeah. And then had that job. Um, so, you know, he, I remember him working um, the Mar- the first few Mary J. Blige albums. I remember him working um, Throwing Copper by Live. He worked uh, Bad Out of Hell 2 by Meatloaf. Um, and when I say worked, you know, like, and then you're sort of like the liaison when these acts come to town, you know, you're because they're doing radio interviews. Again, like, remember in the early 90s late 80s radio was huge was it that's how yeah like that was it that was the you know um that's how people discover music and so these acts put so these labels and acts and teams put so much time into these radio campaigns um that when they came to town on tour every day they would go to the radio station and do an interview and sort of it was sort of my dad's job and people that had that job to sort of be the liaison between the artists and the label and the radio stations do you have like funny kid photos of you with like huge celebrities that your dad was, endless like <laughs> endless. what are some what are some what are some top ones um 
Wow. Uh, so there is one with with me and uh, a six year old me and Meatloaf um, oh, yeah. at the at the Battle Hill Two tour. Um, I mean, honestly, you could probably name name an artist from from who had like, some sort of you know uh, highlight in that era, and I I probably have a photo with with them and it just we we went to like that was my dad's job to go to to go to these concerts and yeah. you know he was he was very adamant about getting a photo with the kids um, was it yeah i was gonna ask was beyonce he bringing, wow beyonce was he bringing, eminem was he bringing all of you or was he bringing just you and like maybe one of me and my brother, brother me and my yeah. brother most uh most all we we probably went to the most because okay. we were just the right age. My sisters are a lot younger. So by the time they were older, he was not so much in that business anymore. Got it. Um, I was lucky enough to where that was sort of the family business all throughout like elementary and middle school and like early high school. With that much music in your house, you know, I often phrase it like something that you found on your own that like wasn't shown to you by your parents or things like that. So like, I guess how about this? Was there something that maybe your your dad was familiar with that he did not like but you liked it like something that you were like this is like for me like maybe my brother doesn't like it maybe my sisters don't like it i like this but they don't yeah i mean so mtv was so big at this time too so there were all the time i would discover my brother or myself would discover something on on mtv that we didn't have in the house or we weren't exposed to that we would say hey dad can you ask to get this CD? Because he knew yeah. all these. It's such a small community um, of radio reps, yeah. or not a small community, but it's a tight. It's you know they all know each other. Um, so often he would he'd be able to write to the Atlantic rep or whomever and be like, "Hey, can you send me the new this whatever CD?" Um, and um, and we, I was very privileged to be able to get access to music like that um in that time um but the the thing the the artist that sticks out the most and i you know um is prince um i remember um i remember finding out about prince just from living a life you know being um having a life steeped in in music and music culture um and going to our our cd our you know our cd collection and asking my dad which prince record should i listen to first which was a common thing i would my brother or i or one of my sisters would know would find out about artists and we would ask dad who worked in the industry what where 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 should i start and he said purple rain and we didn't have purple rain for some reason the seat that of all cds from him yeah got lost or you know who knows who knows why you know uh, but we we had 1999 and the the greatest hits uh, triple triple CD. Um, so I started there, and then we went to Backdoor Disc and Tape to, and he bought me Purple Rain. So that was the first memory I have where this was this was music that was that was mine. Um, yeah, I remember. Uh, but music that I bought with my own money, I remember a friend of mine driving. Um, Riley Howard and his parents drove us to San Francisco for the day. We went to the Virgin Mega Store, and I had like twenty dollars in allowance money, 
and I didn't want to ask my dad. I didn't want to wait for it. I'm like, I'm going to spend my own money on on this new Beastie Boys record called Hello Nasty. So that's yeah. the first time I I had a lot of music before then, but that was sure. the first time I remember using my own money, not wanting to wait for my dad to, you know, hit up yeah. a rep or like get it through, you know, one of his colleagues. I wanted it. Um, I saw it. I, I saw it there and I wanted it then. And um, that was the first time I remember um, bypassing the Enzaldo family system of discovering music and just getting it on my own. Had you already had a bit of a relationship with Beastie Boys through just being aware of them before then? And yeah. that was just like the yeah. new album that you were excited to get your hands on? Yes, it was just the new, it was just brand new. Yeah. Totally, um, totally. But, you know, they were all over MTV and, you know, really popular. And they, you know, they, you know, growing up being um, being into hip hop and, and being really into R&B, um and they also kind of lived in the alternative world as well they were you know really um they checked a lot of boxes so they were like an ob like we were my brother yeah they're like the venn diagram for like a yeah we're obvious they were we were obviously fans of the beastie boys yeah what about your first concert was it i'm assuming it was uh meatloaf it was meatloaf yeah bat out of hell two tour 1993 um and Philadelphia. It was incredible. It was so we were really close. Um I remember just being so impressed by how big it felt and it seemed obviously Meatloaf's music is um quite grandiose and uh you know yeah. almost Broadway-esque. And then the scale of the show being an arena show um was something that I uh was um just so impressive to me and it was like i couldn't um i couldn't believe that like this happened all the all the time um that bands acts were able to do this everywhere it's like how are there this many people in america <laughs> that you know you're six <laughs> years old and your and your scope is so limited um that that the scale of the event just seemed just seemed so surreal, um, and yeah, I I I vividly remember um, him doing um, I would do anything for love, but um, but I won't do that. Um, that was my that that's my biggest singular memory of 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 the set. Um, I remember being very tired at the end. I believe it was a school night, um, but and after the show. We went back to meet Meatloaf, and there was like catering and stuff, and um, and I had this cookie that I I I got from I I picked up from from the table, and I dropped it on the ground, and I picked it up really fast, hoping that nobody would would see, and then Meatloaf yeah. was like, oh, yeah. you, "You're not gonna eat that, are you?" And I just remember felt like I felt <laughs> so embarrassed. That meatloaf just uh, just called me out, and I remember, out. And, yeah, and I'm just holding, and I was too embarrassed to get another cookie, but I didn't have you know <laughs> the confidence to be like, hey, where's the trash can? You know, so I'm just like holding this like crappy floor cookie in my hand for like the rest of like the meet and greet. I don't, I don't I don't remember what happened to it, but I do know that I did not consume uh, said cookie. 
Yeah, you got shamed. You got meatloaf shamed. I got um, loafed. I got loafed. You got loafed. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I always think about, and I've, it's probably, even, there's a chance it's maybe even been talked about on the show or something like that, but I always think about the I Would Do Anything for Love song as that and November Rain being these two songs that somehow got their music videos played and their songs played on the radio when they were like eight-minute songs nine minute songs and like how much of a feat that is that like they were able to convince not only radio but mtv to give them that much airtime it's something that i just have always been so fascinated by i'd be curious to know even like to one day hear your dad's side on like if that was something that was a pain in the ass to try to get done or if that was something that came not as hard as i imagine i don't know yeah i mean i obviously it was rare right but i think when it happened, it happened because these were essentially short films and they, and they allowed, um, they allowed the viewer to not change the channel because they got so engrossed in the, in the video. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, so I think that every once in a while when that worked and I, how many times has, have you heard somebody talk about the November rain video? It's like one of the most iconic videos from that era ever. And yeah, it's yeah, so it is really long, but I think that there's probably some logic in um, these songs. These songs were giant, and these music videos were really big budget and told a story and were essentially short films and allowed the viewer to not to not change the channel. It's true. It's very <laughs> true. Um, when did you start playing an instrument? What was your first instrument? Guitar. At what age? Yeah. I was gifted a guitar when we lived in in Jersey, but it was like a child sized guitar. Yeah. It had an amp built in. It wasn't I didn't I it was I kinda looked at it like more like a toy uh-huh. and like a prop, you know? Um, but on my fourteenth birthday, my dad gifted me um a purple Fender Stratocaster. And I still I play it to this day um that's awesome i i used it all last year on the ceremony tour um i record with it it's one of my it's one of the best sounding guitars i have have you Um, done anything to it or is it still like most of the i've done nothing to it wow and it's yeah it plays incredible it's just there's it just has the magic yeah it's just one of those instruments that has the magic and um so that that was my first real real instrument and once i had something of that i mean at the time i thought it was this like you know um superstar level top shelf guitar and to me it is it is now but it's like a you know it's like a 300 dollars guitar it's not you know like um it's a it's essentially like the first guitar you get after you get like a $100 $100 Squire. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's the yeah, lowest yeah. it's the lowest on the Fender model. Um, so did you take did you take lessons or were you yeah. self-taught? I took lessons immediately and I took lessons. I'll still take lessons every now and again. Um, Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll take lessons um every so often to to brush up on something or you know, if I feel like there's something I'm missing or you know, there's a a, a technique of mine that you know is underdeveloped i'll 
try and seek out um, a teacher who is proficient in that. You know, I I took a few like chicken picking like country lessons over um, a couple years ago just to add that to my yeah yeah to my uh, abilities. But um, so I've been taking lessons on and off since I started playing playing guitar. But I took lessons every week, probably for the first four or five years I started playing guitar. Yeah. Um, something that gets has been talked about in the Touche camp about your playing in particular is that you suck no um that you (laughs) i think i just made anthony spit water that Um... was a genuine spit take my friend (laughs) that was a genuine genuine spit it's rare that's rare Um, shame this is audio only i know so no what i was gonna say is that uh is knowing how good of a guitar player you are like you can shred like you can you can straight up you you can solo you can do all that stuff and you do pull that out sometimes with ceremony like at the end of songs or something like that kind of kind of a deal but um i love we all love how restrained you are and like in what you do for that band and like i think that's a testament to um taste you know what i'm saying where sure someone is able to just do what's right for the song and not want to be showy. And I think that's like, what what, I'm curious if there was somebody that called that attention to you as a guitar player, when you started to learn, or as you became a fan of different kinds of music, like, is there anybody that you look to as like someone who pulls that off really well, that was an influence? Yeah. Well, first, thank you very much. That is quite kind. And thank you for recognizing that ultimately we are all here to serve this what's best for the song yeah um and the style of music the styles of music that speak to me are styles of music that um are song driven and melody driven um so ultimately that's um that's that is the is the main driving force behind my you know restraint or my taste or my style is what is what serves the song best with that said getting into punk really um it illuminated this these other types of of um playing these playing styles that i was unfamiliar with and i think someone like johnny ramon is probably the best example of that um but even him his left hand is very simple, but his right hand and to the naked ear, it may not seem like it, but there's so much skill um, in his style. It sounds very simple. Yeah. Um, and theoretically it is, it is very simple. Um, but the like gymnastic ability of his right hand and the precision of his right hand is unlike any other player, maybe in any music. Um, sure. Same with like it's a like, James Headfield. Yeah. Like the downstroke capability of that man. It's um, it is like nothing short of inspiring, but I, um, I saw this clip recently of, of Billy Joe Armstrong talking about meeting Eddie Van Halen mm-hmm. and Eddie Van Halen telling him, he's like, man, you're the only one that has ever truly got me. And Billy was like, yeah, it's all about the songs. 
and Eddie was like, it's all about the songs. People think I'm, and I'm not comparing myself to Eddie Van Halen. I don't, sure. I, that's, <laughs> I'm just, uh, but uh, Eddie is known for his like, you know, freakish ability yeah, to yeah, solo yeah. and inventing, you know, this style of soloing and lead playing that was so ahead of its time and took so much skill and so much mastery to uh, to perform. But he's like, yeah, so what? I wrote these incredible songs. And that's and that's what he was and that's what Billy was 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 recognizing Eddie for. He's like, Yeah, right. Yeah, you're a great you're a great guitar player. Awesome. Good, good for you. But man, these songs that you wrote were so touching and were so elevated. Um and ultimately it's fun. It's it's fun to solo and it's fun to it's fun to play lead, but um, I would rather play a one note a one note song and have that song be 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 great and be felt and and that honesty translate to the audience than have anybody you know be impressed that I could you know by any of my technical abilities because those those people I mean we live in Los Angeles how many people could you know like rip a solo. Totally. You know, it's like, yeah, good for you. Like you, that's a, that's a gymnastic ability. Those are reps. You know, it's like being able to, you know, do anything physical. You just practice that a lot, the right way, and you were able to do that. Anybody can do that. True. I I tell this. Yeah. I, you know, I've I've taught I've taught guitar, yeah, um, on and off throughout the years, and I've told anyone who I've who I've been teaching. And I've heard so many people say, oh, I wish I could play guitar. It's you can every, anybody can. It's not, it's not whether you're musically, um, gifted you know, or, something, or whatever, gifted yeah. or not. It's will, do you have the discipline to sit down with a metronome and play something at half speed 20 times? So it gets in your muscle memory and then move it, move that metronome, move those BPMs up a little bit and do that over and over again to where you can play that song. That's that's up to you if you want to do that. You can do that. I don't have, there's not something physically that I have that you don't have. Mm-hmm. But songwriting, that's, um, I, that to me is the true, is the true gift. Yeah, it's one of these things you can't, you can't really teach. Like you can get an idea for it from like being a music fan and kind of figuring out the things that work and don't, but um, it's the ability for something like that to come more naturally. And it's not something that ever comes quickly unless you're like a savant. You know what I'm saying? It takes years of of ups and downs and fucking up. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can get to a place where you okay, you know, you know, a bunch of basic chords. You've learned a lot of songs and you can see how the, pu- you know, a puzzle gets made. But ultimately, but once you're there, you're sort of on your own. Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order.
what was the first song that you learned how to play that you were like, oh shit, I'm actually doing this? I remember, um, I remember I uh, learning I could never take the place of your man by Prince was one of the first songs I learned. Um, it were was these funny. things? Were you going to your guitar teacher saying, "Can you show me how to play this?" Or were these things that you were starting to pick up on your own? I was asking him to to show, to show me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I rem- uh, early on, he had a a binder of song of popular songs that that he was teaching his 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 younger students and he would go through them he had printouts of 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 the tabs and the and and the sheet music and he would just go through all of these songs and ask and just say yes or no and i remember my it was my first lesson with him and, and my dad being dad being in the room because he would he would come to our, our um, um our house and they were all you know contemporary or you know within rock radio rock songs from the last 10 years and that's not what i was interested in um i learned i wanted to play guitar because i wanted to be like prince i i i I wasn't like a lot of people who were like i love nirvana you know and i i grew to like a lot of that stuff through playing guitar yeah because i wanted to learn i wanted to learn the instrument and i wanted to get in the in the minds of all these people who were able to achieve you know such such heights with the instrument so then I ended up having an appreciation for like American, like alt, you know, like, like nineties alt music, but it's not, it was not my gateway at all. So I remember him just naming all these songs, whether it be Nirvana or Rage Against the Machine or Soundgarden. And I was just like, no, no, just didn't, just didn't care. And my dad was like, he was like, Hey, can I step in here? Um, it's all about Prince for this kid. So, um, that's sort of the angle. So there weren't, I, I got into more rock based music and playing from trying to find people to play music with. And that's what everyone else was, was into. I didn't have a great aversion to that style of music. It just wasn't, um, it just wasn't what I was into. It just wasn't what I, I, what I grew up on. But then I started to have an appreciation, um, for bands, you know, like Nirvana um, and Weezer from learning how to play guitar because the guitars were so upfront and so present. And that's that was sort of my intro into um, into sort of alternative music that wasn't, you know, what my what I grew you know, what my dad kind of worked or showed us. There was a few things, you know, we, the Black Album was a really big record in the house growing up and um we were really into pink floyd but most of it was was more you know on the soul and and r&b um end of the end of the spectrum i'm curious when you found punk through your friends that you were mentioning early on um when it was like oh there's something that i'm unfamiliar with there's something that i don't you know have any sort of uh, understanding of that has been in my life yet um was do you think i don't know if this is something you've ever thought about do you think that your attraction to it was because it was so different than anything you had heard before and you wanted to be a part of it or do you think it was like wanting to catch up and also be on the same page as your peers i think it was probably a little bit of both but it I I found this group of people that I connected to with on a personal on a personal level. 
Um, a lot of these people ended up being in a band called Lifelong Tragedy, um, also from Runner Park. Um, we 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 got along personally, so I was just interested. And they were they were starting a band, um, and they were my friends, and I was interested in, in their life and their endeavors. And we were sharing, you know, like any relationship, we were just sharing our our interests and the thing that spoke to us with 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 each other um and i i always um and then there was straight edge i always uh the um the notion like what straight edge has how how it speaks to me has always spoken to me i just didn't know there was a community was, and a title. A yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. a thing. So when all these kids were straight edge, I was like, Oh, that's, that's me. Like, I, I don't, you know, um, I don't agree with recreational drug, uh, drug use. I don't identify with all of these people and these, and these societal norms that, um, you know, um, that the way, the way everybody else does, yada 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 um so that was like my real my real introduction to hardcore was that there was a straight edge scene that makes a lot of sense very similar to me too where it was like i always felt uncomfortable because i didn't know how to uh say i didn't want to do anything without just sounding like a dork you know i I was just like yeah i don't uh, no thank you um but then when i discovered earth crisis i was like wait a minute so they just like have a title for this thing and i can just like use that as an excuse and it sounds way cooler than just saying i don't want to yeah right like well that's the thing it's like i wasn't there was nothing i was afraid of i wasn't christian i wasn't there was no like you know um there was i wasn't trying to adopt or adapt to anything i i saw um you know alcohol and drugs as this as something that was like really civilian and and extremely pedestrian and extremely normal and while um being while it being very clear the damage that it does um to uh to one's body and one's relationship so it it wasn't it wasn't a matter of like um I'm afraid to try this because of what it might do to me. It was like, I, I could see what it's doing to everyone else. It's not a, it's, right. it's not a fear yeah. thing. It actually looks like s- stupid and bad. And it's making all it's everyone that I've encountered. It's, it has made them, um, a less smart and less and be less caring towards the people that, that, that they love. And then to find that, cause you know, I could have, I could, you know, one, one could easily be like, well, I'm going to be, you know, a devout, like Jehovah's witness. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I don't like, I'm too scared to try drugs or alcohol or, or I think that, that this is evil and bad. So I'll go, I will, I will take this path. And that, that wasn't, it had nothing tr- to do with that. <laughs> the you know true I mean? prince path. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, so to find a group of, of like-minded, um, of like-minded kids, um, was 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 really big and finding punk was way more about the community at first 
like the community is what drew is what drew me in and then when once i was there uh realizing that a lot of these bands and the still the the best the best punk bands and the best hardcore bands are bands with songs yeah. you know what i mean like if you listen to the first minor threat seven inch like it there's a lot of anger and you kind of have to sift through the performance to get to the melody but if you just isolate those hooks and those melodies like those that's like beetle level songwriting um, no i i completely agree i was uh what i did the fugazi episode of the 60 songs that explain the mm -hmm. 90s thing um i talked i remember mentioning that to rob parvilla being like you like these songs had hooks like they're fugazi incredible inside, songs like, yeah it's like you hear these songs twice you know them for the rest of your life of course you just you have know? to yeah and once you're a part of that community and you're like sort of i don't know uh your musical palette uh, has sort of like um you've grown a taste for more like aggressive performances or more lo-fi recordings or um or performances then you're able to sort of hear 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 the hear the the quality of of the songwriting and hear that hooks and i I think it's the same thing as like a Bob Dylan. You know what I mean? Like Dylan doesn't sound like, like the pop music before, before, you know, like the, like the Phil Spector or the Motown stuff that was so crystal clear and so, and performed. I mean, all that music's incredible. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. It's, it's yeah. some of the best music, if not the best music ever made, but it was catered to be, they were all catered to be hits and, they were they were written and recorded um in a fashion that um where the the technical prowess was very intentional and you ha and the and the production was crystal clear and uh and then bob dylan was was more uh he wasn't a traditional singer he wasn't the greatest guitar player in the world you know, and by comparison, the production of those records wasn't what they were doing in Motown, or wasn't what Phil Spector was doing, or wasn't what the for Beatles, sure, yeah, wasn't what the Beatles were doing. But once you sort of, you know, give it a chance, and your and your palate adjusts to those sort of like, you know, to those production techniques, or 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 you know that style of performance, you you're able to hear these just insane melodies these otherworldly melodies and songwriting techniques and um i think that that is applied that same sort of logic is applied is applied to all the the great punk and and hardcore bands uh what was the first band that you ever did i when doing some research i saw a band from 2004 that had a song on a comp that i'd never even heard you talk about before the morning dawn is, is that your first band or no 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 um that was that band was essentially a solo project of Alex Capasso, who um, is the brainchild behind a band called Skin Like Iron. Okay. Um, who he was also the original um, second guitar player in Ceremony. Um, that was his sort of brainchild, and all of us kind of from the North Bay would kind of play in in, yeah, in, in Morning I... Dawn from you know here and there. 
Um, yeah, I saw I saw I had members of lifelong lifelong tragedy, yeah. Sabretooth Zombie, like that crew of kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first band I ever did was a band called The Rubber Band. Okay. Um, started. I was a freshman in high school. Um, Harry Petty was the singer. He went on to sing in a band called Set It Straight from Redding, California. And then it was just a couple kids from our high school. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think they did much music after that. You know, I think it was kind of like their, you know, did you just play guitar. I just played guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry sang. Um, we had a couple different bass players and a couple different drummers. Um, and it was one of these bands where it's like every song sounds like it could be a different band. Totally. Um, and it was just sort of just mirrored like what like rock and alt music was from like the past 10 years so there was like there was a nirvana song there was a weezer song so was this the first band that you also played a show with your first show yeah yeah what was that um that was at the vision teen center in runner park california it only existed for a few years there are um there's an apartment complex there now um it was the rubber band opening um a band called luxt l-u-x-t and I've never heard Cold Chamber, but it's what I envision Cold Chamber to sound like based on based that on their would, aesthetic and like who was in the band. Yeah, um, that would have been that would have been my band in the local. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would have been in that band. For yeah, sure. but they, they were like adults. Everyone else who played the show were like, I mean, they felt like adults i mean yeah like they could have been like like a lot older but they were like in their 20s yeah okay yeah yeah. um and then a band headline they were called locale am they were from the i believe they're from nevado or san rafael they were like this weird mix of like kind of pop punk and there was like a little rapping and but then like a like an acoustic ballad but there was like a lot of production too like they had like you know um someone like running samples oh, okay. uh and so it was but but they were like really like i mean it not i'm sure if i heard it now it would not be for me but they were like they were like a professional band yeah like and, it struck you as like this band is on a different level than what the rest yes, of us are doing yes they were well rehearsed their songs were like you know thoughtfully written and they there was always this rumor that they almost got signed by a major um and they and they may have i remember they like years and years later i remember seeing a flyer for like their last shows and there there were two last shows at this place called i music cast in oakland which hold like 500 people so they were like kind of like a big yeah local band but i don't really know what scene they belonged in but anyway we played our first show um with them and then that band lasted probably about a year and then we got like really into hardcore and ultimately I would started with like, I would fill in for lifelong tragedy sometimes. Um, Alex C from uh, more the morning dawn, his main band was a band called these days that I joined. Um, and you know, ceremony started writing and, and, you know, um working on 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 that demo in 2004 so only you know it's only three years after i kind of played my started my first band you know that that ceremony started when ceremony started what was the 
goal sonically? Like, were you guys into bands like Infest and stuff like that, where you're like, we want to yeah. do like this kind of a thing? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was negative approach. Okay. And like, and you know, it was negative approach, Infest, Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, Circle Jerks. That's you know what we. And then the more modern, the more modern bands, um, we really liked Outbreak. We were really into um, like Panic. Yeah. You know, bands with like sh- really short and really fast songs. Um, yeah. Look Back and Laugh. Um, arguably one of the best hardcore bands ever. Yeah, certainly um, one it, of the best Bay bands. Yeah, that's without sure. a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, so we were definitely more into, but I, I would say Negative Approach was probably our biggest, you know, like, our biggest starting point, our biggest how, jumping off reference. How long was the band together before you guys went and recorded that first seven inch? So we recorded the demo in, in December of 2004. Um, and the original demo tape actually says demo 04 on it, even though it we didn't start selling it till 05. And our first show was in 2005. Um, and that seven inch features... I believe four songs. I'm sorry, that demo features four songs that were re-recorded for the first seven inch. Cursed, it's gonna be a cold winter. Um, you're all the same, and throwing bricks were all on the demo and re-recorded for the seven inch, which we we recorded I I think in the spring of two thousand five. Was this just because maybe I jumped ahead a little bit? No, no. Uh, had you recorded before this, or was this your first real recording experience? Um, uh, the rubber band recorded kind of with, I mean, we did record there, we did record, but it was a, a friend of ours. He was like in high school, he had like a four track and like a drum set up in his house, and um, we recorded a demo with him. Um, by no means was it like a proper studio. It was like in a literal bedroom in a suburban house. There was yeah. no, um, I, I remember playing through like a line six pod just right into, you know, the four track. Um, I don't even know if all the drums were mic'd. Maybe they were, it was really, <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah, it's like what it, you expect your first bands. Recording yeah. Things. Yeah, it, yeah. It wasn't like a, you know, uh, an iPhone practice space demo. But it was one one tier above above that. Yeah. Um, the do you still have a copy isolated. Of it? Yeah. Do, you, do uh, you still have it? It's so funny you ask me that because I must have a, it somewhere. But recently, like two weeks ago, this person I knew from middle school and high school, and I guess elementary school, like we grew up in the same neighborhood, hadn't I haven't seen him since graduation day seemingly he created an instagram or maybe it's just a burner account but he had zero follow zero followers zero following on instagram uh-huh. he dm'd me saying hey man my brother and i were trying to think about the lyrics to this one rubber band song do you we we would do anything for that for that demo do you have it do you have the files? And I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe you're, I can't, cannot believe this is happening. I can't believe I'm getting, yeah. um, somebody from high school is 
writing me about the rubber band right now. What yeah. a trip. And we and we reconnected. Um and I, I but so That's great. That's I was awesome. put I I um the rubber band demo like re-entered my consciousness yeah, within yeah, the last yeah. few weeks, which it has hadn't in So did you, you track know, it down or are you still in the process? I, I have not I have not attempted to track it down. Okay. But <laughs> I know it's got to be, it's somewhere someone has it. Yeah. Um, and then I did a band with, um, I'm trying to think, was Duck Hunt or Behind My Back first? So I did a band called Duck Hunt with uh, Donald from For the Crown, Scott from Life Funk Tragedy on vocals, and Jerry from Life Funk Tragedy on drums. And it was a, it was a joke, it was a dumb joke band. But it got like, you know, we would play sh- shows and people would sing along. You know what right. I mean? It was like my first experience where that happened. And it was like, it was very ironic. It was called, you know, like Duck Hunt and every song was about the video game. The video game, um, yeah, sure. But it started to like get, you know, people would tell me that it was like on the Bridge Nine board and it was like hyped and all all this stuff. And so when that happened, we... we we stopped the band because Scott <laughs> Scott was in a Scott was in a real band with Lifelong, and it was like yeah. we have no business like like this having is not, this get hype. Yeah, that's that's not the vibe. Like this is a fun thing to do with our friends. Um, so that that we we did a proper recording of that demo, and then I did a band with JD, who's in Ceremony. Um, he played bass and. Eric Enos, who plays guitar in Serpentine Zombie, was on vocals. It was a band called Behind My Back. And it was like, you know, kind of like more metallic, hardcore stuff. But it, but it was very simple. It, it wasn't like technical or like death metal influenced at all. It, it just had halftime breakdowns, essentially. Sure. Um, yeah. And that band also did a proper recording um, at Castle Ultimate with, with, with Zach Oren, where um, Ceremony recorded our first few um releases so we did this sort of not really kind of recording with with the rubber band and then did proper recordings with like so, um, seemingly kind of a short time after there yes when, yeah, yeah 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 was your introduce introduction to zach Oren like did you know him already or was it like oh this is where everybody from the base seems to go and yeah. get a quality recording out of that out of the it experience was, it, it's just where everyone in our world, our size would go. Lifelong Lifelong did did stuff with 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 him. He did Yeah, I saw like I mean He did the For the Crown at, album. I saw like Killing the Dream and like even bands yeah. like Funeral Diner, like every kind of NorCal Animosity. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, um when you went there, was there a like <laughs> I guess the first time, like were you nervous about how it would go were you hard on yourself in the studio and how much has that changed today to today i'm not hard on myself at all in 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 the studio i um i may i might be a, a little hard on other people i i could definitely um get a little I've spicy had, i've had that reputation i'm i feel like i could be i'm kind but i'm uh i come i come to the studio very prepared and i yeah. take um playing music and doing art very seriously um it's something i don't take lightly at all so i expect that sort of care from 
everyone else that I um, yes. work with. It, honestly, it's it's you know it's hard finding people that that care as much as you. Yeah, I mean, at you the know? end of the day, that's that's probably the most common uh, contributor to a band breaking up totally. is the one or two members that would die for it, and the other members that it's a hobby. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so to answer your question, um, I loved the experience. I loved being able to to properly record record music. It was only exciting for me. Um, and I wasn't I wasn't hard on myself, but I'm um, I guess I'm more hard on the process and and I want it I, I want the I you want it hear- to be the best it could be. Yeah, and you probably have an idea of what you're expecting to hear. And if it's not coming exactly. out to what you expected, it's hard to deal with. I can understand that, and I can relate to that 100%. Um, was that ruined 7-inch the first time any of your bands had anything on vinyl? Yes. Yes, there was a Duck Hunt Hammer Time split that Sammy the Mick put out on seven inch which i guess that must have come out before the the ruined seven inch but i kind of don't even count duck hunt yeah it wasn't it was just i love that it had a vinyl press (laughs) yeah it was just such a fake it was like yeah sammy put out a split of like the like two these two joke bands from from the north bay you know i mean who like who got just like a little too much notoriety than what like what we deserved um and our last show was the same show. Um, the Duck Hunt Hammer Time last shows were this was the same show at the Phoenix. Uh, but yeah, I uh, the ruin the ruin seven inch was was the first like proper um, my my first proper band's vinyl recording. Jealous again, a band I was in, I joined right before Ceremony, but but existed simultaneously with early Ceremony. Um, we had we pressed our record on CD. Okay. Cuz it was it was cheaper, cheaper but yeah. it it was we we had a it, that that was my first, you know, non burn CD, non demo it uh pressing pressing plant real packaging album that I was ever on. The uh the 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 plastic wrap and the plastic wrap and not having a blue back, you feel so so you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's real, yeah. it's actually Yeah, happening. it's real. Yeah, yeah. I am here to update you on the upcoming releases from Persistent Vision Records. You can pre-order the incredible split between Massanera and Quiet Fear. It's a collaborative split. Both of these bands are great. If you're a fan of Screamo, sign right up. You can pre-order these through Persistent Vision and through Deathwish Inc. Also available is a self-titled 12-inch from the band Goisha, who are a new DC band featuring members of Genocide Pact and Brain Tourniquet. They're playing death metal with elements of grind, black metal, and punk. And lastly, a record from the band Wreath. The album is called The Land Is Not An Idol God. They are a dark, melodic crust band out of London, featuring members of the iconic bands Fall of Afrafa and Morrow. Head up Persistent Vision or Deathwish Inc. to order now. What was the first tour you ever did? Um, I was a j- junior in high school. Um, lifelong tragedy these days. U.S. tour. 
Um, the summer, well, sorry, you- it was it was the summer between junior and senior year. And you did a full U.S. tour. Well, kind of a full U.S. tour in the eyes of a you know kid who's in high school still. We, you know, we weren't. I don't think we were super confident with our map reading abilities at this at this yeah. stage in our life. So we booked a tour that was on, only on the 80 freeway all the way to Long Island. The last show was in Long Island and then drove back. Oh, my God. So it was like Denver, which we missed. Minneapolis, which zero people paid to go. So we're on tour for three days already. Well, it you know took one full day to get to Denver. Yeah. yeah so we're on tour for three days. First show we missed because we were it was. We didn't account for the time. And one show, zero people paid. We got paid zero dollars. Um, and then we just hit towns in the Midwest that were, you know, major, major towns off the 80 freeway uh, until we got to Long Island. And I actually flew home from that show. Um, I flew to L.A. actually because Jealous Again was opening up for Sick Fit All at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Wow. Um, yeah. So... Um, my dad was kind enough to buy me a plane ticket, um, to go, cause I didn't have, I mean, I'm 17, 16 years yeah. old. It's like no how money. Resentful, how resentful was your band that you were flying home? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure. But that was, that was our first tour. And it's, I remember first day of choir, uh, first day of choir class, um, senior year, everyone went around, um, by instruction of our teacher to, um, tell, to explain, um, and announce what we did over the summer. And I was like, I'm going to blow these people's minds. I yeah. went on a, I went on a full tour with, with my band and the girl before me, uh, her godfather was in the grateful dead. Oh my God. Is in the great, it's, it's Phil yeah. Lesh. That's his name, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's the bass player of, of the grateful dead. Okay. John Robinson. Don't. And Timmy Hefner, please don't hurt me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> She was like, I went, I was on the bus and went on uh, the Grateful Dead's <laughs> world tour because my uncle is in the band. Everyone was like, oh my God, it's so crazy. And then I was next. I was like, yeah, I went on tour with my band, like in a van, put all these, <laughs> you know, went all the way to New York. And I was like, cool. Okay. Uh, next. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. But bombed. Tanked. Oh my God. Um, not similar, but made me think of that is one time I got jury duty and got called up to like the floor with like the big cases, you know, like, Oh, uh-huh. this is going to be a big case. Uh-huh. Walk in and the judge is literally judge Ito. Judge Ito. Have I told you the story? No. Is it judge Ito? Really? It's judge Ito. True. Truly. Yeah. No, I just know. I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just riffing because the OJ no, case. No, literally fucking judge. Ito. Oh, I walk in, I'm like, Oh my God. Right. So they're, you know, as anyone who's ever had jury duty, they start asking like, is there a reason you would not be able to participate in this case? You know, I go on tour like a couple days from then. So it's like, I can't be here. I'm going to go on tour. So when they're, when everybody raises their hand on like what they can or cannot do, I was like, I'm going to say I'm in a band. I'm on tour. He's going to fucking, that's a, that's a good excuse. Right. Yeah. The woman before me, (laughs) she goes, she goes, uh, I'm a comedian and I have a whole tour booked. I actually leave, uh, tomorrow. And I'm just like, fuck. Like, and then oh, he was like, everyone's going to be using this excuse. Yeah. Or like, he's going to just think I'm full of shit. Right. So yeah. Like, and Judge Ito's like, he's like, 
oh, your comedian told me a joke. Like did one of those things. And uh, and he was like, I'm just kidding. You can go and like let her go. So then I then he's like, yes, you. And I'm like, I similarly to her, I am, but I'm actually in a band and I'm in, you know, whatever. And, and everyone just kind of like goes, mm. and he goes, all right, what's your band called? Uh, and I was like, you haven't heard of us. And he goes, try me. And I go, it's called Touche Amore. And then he goes, you're right. I haven't heard of you. Get out of here. And let me go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I did not, I, I did not, I didn't see him letting you go. I was, I was, I was ready for that story to, to tank and you have two weeks of, oh my of, God. of jury duty. Yeah, I would have found another way out of there, but it was also Obviously. like definitely not going to be a sexy case. I think it was like a big fraud case with like big bank type people. I was like, this, right. you know, this ain't it no wasn't, murder case. It, it wasn't OJ part two. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we weren't going to put away OJ this time. No, no. Is what, no. Is what you're saying. Um, what was your first international tour? 2007, uh, Ceremony Bane Have Heart. Was it Europe? Yeah. How uh, was it for you? Five and a half weeks in Europe. Jesus. Yeah. Uh not great. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. it wasn't great. Yeah. Um I mean it was it was great to be there. It was great to have the opportunity and Yes. Um, of course. You know, Bane is, you know, one of the you know, most notable bands of of the genre ever. Um and Have Heart were were friends of ours. Uh but it was it was good it was it was great that it worked out the way it did because we had just we had headlined Sound and Fury in 2007 toured out to the east coast and then flew to Europe from from the east coast so we our first show was like 2 weeks after Sound and Fury yeah and we just had a new 7 inch and um we just signed to Bridge 9 and you know we headlined Sound and Fury so i was under the impression that we were kind of like there yeah you're you crushing know? yeah you were the biggest um, band in the world at this point or at least like a, a band, like a hardcore band that like people you know people Give who are going about. to hardcore yes. hardcore shows would know existed yeah and there was probably like six shows on that tour where people knew the words and were like singing along and were like got you know got where where we got good reactions but it was a um all of those people have remained really great friends and it was to this day the longest european tour we've ever done and a lot of cities that we played on that tour we've never gone back to um so you know it was my only experience ever you know in in a lot of countries um so it was it was amazing um but it was you know it 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 was a learning experience and playing that kind of music to you know uh a crowd that is n- not receptive makes you really makes you good at performing yeah. and playing live. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you don't have the crowd to rely on, you know, um, and that is something that has come in handy a lot throughout the years when we've um, we've had to, you know, when we've opened for bands like non non punk bands and knowing that we weren't going to be playing to our crowd you know it you build this sort of you know you acquire this skill and you build this confidence of being able to do do what you do in any scenario and like that that's an invaluable gift you fucking hit the nail on the head man there's so many i get so excited when i see 
you know, newer hardcore bands or whatever, uh, starting to do really well and pop off and like crush and like have these really big, amazing sets. Um, and it's fun to watch, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, now I want to see what happens when they can't play to their audience and sure. like, and watch them have to then recalibrate and learn how to be a good band without audience participation. And some bands want to never even experience that. And like, God bless. Good for you. That's cool. Sure. Stick to your lane by all means. But like that playing with a barrier, playing to an audience that isn't your audience and having to really like fucking craft convey, your ability to yeah, be good. And convey truth and convey confidence yes. and and do your songs justice, you know, um, is is a learned is a learned skill and absolutely our, our first lesson and that was was that first um was that was that first european tour um man i'll never forget one of our first european tours our second time over there we were with, we were with a lot of dispute and then our three bands ended up on that random show in Zurich. that was your first european tour our second tour oh, that was our oh okay. second time that yes. was our second time over um yeah. but i think that might have been our first time playing in switzerland and i remember just being so blown away by how strict they were about the db limit because remember they made our yeah. bands play behind the fucking the drummer play behind the plexiglass like it was yep. church yes yes that didn't that didn't last long no well not for you guys that, we were too scared plexiglass- <laughs> we were too scared to like make a deal of it. You guys were like, "Fuck this!" <laughs> yeah, fuck this place. Um, yeah, that's wow. That was that early for you guys. Crazy. That was yeah, that our was... 2010, I think. Yeah. So that probably 11? was for you guys, like uh, maybe eleven. Because we had Actually, Andy right. with us. Yeah, so right, that was, was Andy's. That was Andy's first first tour with us. Yeah, so I think that was our fourth time, fourth or fifth time going over there. And were you guys just over there on your own? Yeah, because I now when you don't think about it at the time, but thinking about it in retrospect, it is. Inter- it was like it's weird that because us and a lot of people were on tour together that yeah. we just ended up on this one show with you guys. Were you guys yeah. like going to different festivals or something or what? We were just on tour. Yeah, just, it was just you know you guys and there locals. Was, there was yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. With uh, I want to talk about Runner Park a bit just because. In a couple of weeks, you're going to be doing the this big show at the Palladium, yeah, which is very exciting. Thank um, you. Yeah, have you guys rehearsed? Crazy. So many, so much. Have you really? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you guys? Um, do you got? I mean, we don't need to. No spoilers or anything mm-hmm. like that. But like, do you guys have? Is there going to be like production in mind, or are you guys just like fuck it? We're going to go out there and play. Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Great. Yeah, there there are things that there are. Um, there are things that we are doing and getting specific to this show, but That's um, it's not, it's not going to be a full blown rock production. Yeah. Like it's like, we're not going to do everything that the palladium could handle. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, we, it's, uh, you know, finding the middle balance between being true to, to us and that the album and the aesthetic of the album and, and, and the show, um, you know, it's a, it's a sound and fury presents show with ceremony infest soul search gouge away and blazing eye. You know what I mean? So like, um, going, there's definitely a, a, a too much, you know, yeah. there's definitely too much production that would, that would, um, 
I feel like hinder the experience. Yeah. But I also feel like going up there, um, you know, with one rehearsal and just like a black drape in the background, you know, with just like whatever house, you know, house sound or house lighting and just kind of not, not, you know, thinking about those elements, I think would do the show a disservice. So, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be, it's going to be tasteful and, um, it's going to be really, a really special night. Yeah. How are you feeling about it at this point? Are you excited? Are you getting, ner- are you nervous at all? I am not, I'm not nervous to, to play. Um, yeah. I, you know, we've just, we've never done a show of this scale, not even close. And it's a, it's a one-off. So it's kind of like what we were talking about doing festivals earlier. You know what I mean? You're not in the, you're not in the, in the, in the habit and and in the groove and your muscle memory isn't, isn't kicked in, hasn't kicked in. Um, so, you know, when that happens, you're just like, you, you can't be on autopilot, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm very conscious of that. And I'm just, I'm, you know, we're rehearsing a lot and just trying to, to think of every, you know, um, be, be mindful of every variable. So it, so we can convey, you know, and perform as if we're, have been on tour for six months. How far in advance have you planned out your outfit? Um, it's funny. You are like probably the 10th person to ask me that question. <laughs> you have a brand, my friend. And I have an outfit in mind that, uh, I have not been able to find oh no or get made so i am a i'm i'm that's part of my biggest point of 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 anxiety okay. is is what is how is how i'm gonna get is, is how i'm gonna execute this this outfit idea but um even if i stop short on that idea i could promise you that i will be looking very good okay i love it i love it I promise. Uh, when you guys were writing, or I'm curious how long the writing process was for that record, and if it was any different than the earlier material that was like much more like, you know, fast blast, beady, like shorter songs, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Like when you guys were writing Runner Park, like was there a whole vision in mind in how the band was going to start changing directionally? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, f- well. Firstly, I want to say that uh, me announcing that regardless i'm gonna look very good at the palladium show um i was i was hoping for a big laugh from you and you uh and i i appreciate you taking me at at face value but um it was meant to be at least a partial joke i just want that i just want that on the record uh, for listeners i think it's important for them to hear that for me knowing you as long as i have yeah you're like i don't i don't give a shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah um also i just know i i know you're you're gonna you're gonna be jazzed up you're gonna be bizarre bedazzled up it's gonna be it's gonna be a i'm that's actually what i'm most looking forward to yeah yeah i think i think that's what's moved the most tickets is (laughs) is 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 the willy won't he aspect of 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 the outfit um runner park so i think we took it as far as we could with still nothing moves you Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we could have gotten any, um, like, like more abrasive, darker, or yeah. I don't think the contrast between, um, like fast and mid tempo and the, I don't and the abruptness of the band from '05 to '08. I don't think we could have took that any further without, 
um, without it turning into something that we had never, which that we hadn't envisioned. Um, and that was far away from sort of our initial objective. So it was kind of the only time ever in the band where I thought about like, what should the next thing sound like? Cause you know, obviously we get, you know, every interview we've ever done ever, somebody asks us about like the, the, the shift in, in sound and the change in sound and how we, of course, and how we've changed so much. Um, and we've never discussed where to go next. We get in a room after whatever break that we've had from the last record and we write what comes naturally. And then the rest of the album is sort of influenced by those initial batch of songs. Runner Park was the only time where I was really trying to think about what I wanted it to be like. And knowing that we hit a wall um, musically, which still nothing moves you. I love that record, but uh, it was clear it was uh, uh, to me, it had to be sort of the end, like, mm-hmm. you know, the end of that chapter. Um, Cause I just couldn't, I just couldn't envision where it could have gone from there. And so I had this initial idea of, of putting out three EPs that would come out as one at also as one 12 inch with the sort of very loose and like lazy, like past, present, future sort of theme. And it would be songs that, you know, um, songs that sort of like emulated the things that were influenced by then, you know, songs that like were more on the still nothing moves you sort of like vein of what we've been doing for the last few years. And then really taking it to like an experimental next level. Um, more with like maybe more instrumental and kind of ethereal and like you know soundscapes and like all this all the stuff that we were like kind of starting to dabble with with still nothing moves you and with with the he god b-side dogma and i had this idea and then the songs like what i envisioned would be like the first ep of of that project we just fell into such a groove and we just kind of just kind of abandoned that idea. It was a, it was a very loose idea. Um, and it it ended up just being like a starting off point. Um, and I think we, you know, but really I think we just wanted to challenge ourselves with where we've been so reliant on stark tempo changes and, um, breakdowns that what if we do away with that altogether? what 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 would we what what could we do what does that sound like yeah and and that like once i gave myself permission to sort of abandon abandon what i thought ceremony sounded like or what ceremony was like i just i just got in such a groove i i have never hit a stride like that um recording and writing ever it was just like these songs were just coming to me so naturally and effortlessly because i just i just just putting myself in this in this in this mindset and not being bound to any to any sort of um you know to any sort of rule book um 
just allowed me it just it was really inspiring and it was a really inspired time um and i think and then it allowed us to just make this really cohesive left turn totally yeah you know it's so funny when i like i talked to you know i had ross on the show and we went through a lot of the records and it's funny i I remember specifically him being like you're gonna have to ask anthony you're gonna have to ask anthony you know like a lot like i was asking very specifics about like working with certain producers and like what the motivation was to go to certain people and um i guess the one that sticks out to me the most is i'd be curious to hear your um what it was like for you working with john reese because that seems like from a guitar person from a guitar perspective that seemed like such a it'd probably be such a joy it was the it was the best um he is the best after that record we all felt like we could never make a record with anybody else ever again. Um, obviously, we did with Will Yip for our next record, but that was just you know scheduling issues. Um, and I'm I, obviously I'm happy we did work with Will. I think that yeah, he, I don't. Uh, he, I think it's the best probably we've ever sounded ever is is that album. But John Reese, uh, he has such a unique take on and lens when it comes to the the creation process um where it's everything is everything is still influenced and and through and through sort of like a punk filter but um his ability to like his his ability to to know exactly what you are like what the band is going for um his his intuition on on your like overall objective is is uncanny um and you know we released the record that got compared the you know the l-shaped man the, the record that he produced got compared to a lot a lot of bands from the 80s from yeah. manchester <laughs> and none of those bands were acts that he is an active fan of really. Yeah. Um, And we were just all in this very, he was just, he, but he understood. He also understood that we weren't, that we weren't going for that really. Like we were just in, this was just where we naturally arrived and was just the next step after zoo. Um, And he motivated, uh, he, he motivated us in many ways, but specifically we demoed the album, sent it to him. He signed on to work on the record. And he, um, I remember us having like a two hour phone conversation, really dissecting what my goals were and what, um, with, 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 with the music. Um, and you know, the, the sonic sort of, you know, texture of, of the album and we're having this deep dive into into these demos and he's like you know i think these demos are great but there's not a he's like i don't think there's a single um i don't think there's a, there's there's the song i don't think there's an anchor yet and i was taken back by that because i think i was i wasn't there there was like three or four that i thought were going to be like staples sure so it's like and hearing for, hearing yes. someone have a, a much different listening experience than yes. what you think is correct. and a fan yeah 
and and from a he he was a fan of the band and and a fan of the demos and a, and excited to work on the record. So he wasn't he was coming that that sentiment came from a place of like of love. Yeah. And 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 wanting to help. So then you know and we were talking about I remember we were we're talking about hooks a lot and he was and it was him that really made me realize like a hook isn't necess- isn't necessarily the mel the vocal melody of a chorus a a drum car a drum part could be a hook yeah the bass line could be the hook of a song the guitar line you know he was like it's not you know uh a hook is a hook is a hook you know so i remember so i took that advice and went to our practice space and wrote exit fears which i was like okay every part of this song is going to be a hook we had sort of started sort of worked on this on this song you know that was unfinished that became unfinished that was rather lukewarm but the only part i liked about it was jake's drum drum section so and it was very like it was very rhythmic it wasn't a traditional beat um it was like almost this like you know tom you know tom ride loop thing and i thought that was really catchy so i was like okay I'll, that'll be the drum part and then i sought out to write a bass line that was like just an objective hook and something that you would you know remember on 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 first listen but anyway i crafted this song with that in mind like let's have every single instrument be doing something memorable and having no instruments just there to support another instrument you know all obviously you want it to to meld melt well with each other but um and that song became exit fears which is the second song on on the record and then we he helped he helped us restructure so many of those songs and he's just like one of the just funniest and one of the most clever and wittiest people you'll ever meet he's like one of the most talented guitar players in a very unique way um he just like can't he just conquers and owns that instrument unlike any money i've ever seen had he done and i'm sure he has i just like i can't think of any off the top of my head had he produced many bands that weren't bands that he was in yes he did um like, was there a record that you were pointing to, or was it just because of his work with like Hot Snakes and and all these bands that he's been in? Him as his his as a member of Rocket from, um, as Rocket from the Crypt, it was like our our biggest, um, you know, uh, is what we knew him from the most, and we were all really big Rocket from the Crypt fans. So his work with Rocket is, um is what real it was was the thing that i think was the biggest influence to 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 us especially ross um totally. but they you know they covered the same they covered the same um red sea song that we do pressures on they had a recording of that um so we have you know a, a subliminal kinship um as well yeah i think i brought that cover up to ross on the episode mm-hmm. and i was surprised to know that that was the main driving point for doing the cover that it wasn't the original version, or at least that's what Ross said for, for him at least. And I was like, huh, Oh wow. That's interesting. interesting. Cause yeah. when I remember when we decided to do that, I don't, I, I remember reference only referencing 
you know the uh the comp yeah version um but i i you know i'm i don't i don't doubt that that's that was like his that his his favorite version of the song sure um anthony when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards um i think um from the beginning and also never uh i think that any any artist any true artist will tell you that success is on completion of what you're working on at, at that time um and i truly feel that way so um it's it's at every it's at any time i have learned a song i wanted to learn or finished a recording that um we were working that that we were working on or or writing a song that or or you know uh finishing a song that that i or we were writing um that's the true gift and that's the true success of playing music and creating art um but also that's a never ending um you're never done you're never done um so that will never um that'll never go away i'll always and i i don't think this is specific to me but um the the need because it is a need um it's not it's not a want it's not subjective it's not um it's not a hobby um it's often not even time something that is fun or something i want to do but it's something i have to do because that's um because the creative spirit is is uh is just ingrained in me um and when you have that um you never feel like you achieved what you've worked for i mean that that all of that makes sense to me i just hope that hearing you answer that it makes me concerned for your happiness as an artist like are you able to find happiness when you do complete something and like in a way that is fulfilling still or do you are you already thinking like well i have to now do something else because i need to continue scratching this itch no the what you've done before never is never used as a reference to what to what you will do um and no it is anytime i feel so proud and feel such success anytime a project um is finished but those projects are ultimately like subsidiaries of the greater sure sort of goal and um and you know when it's when everything is when when the stars are aligned it is of creating music and being a creative and being an artist is very enjoyable but I don't think that it's its purpose is to give me enjoyment. I don't think it's I don't, I don't think that the creative process owes me happiness. Uh, I, th I think its purpose is greater than that. Um, and I think it's something that is innate. Um, and. And when it all goes and when everything and when it all goes right, it's it's in a it's an incredible um 
it's an incredible experience, but you know, I don't think I have a choice in the matter. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I do. And I, it's just one of these, I think, I think from my, just like listening to you answer the question, I, I, uh, as someone who is your friend and as someone who is also a fan of the work that you do, um, there's always just that part of me from that angle to be like, man, I hope Anthony appreciates what he's, what he he accomplishes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, uh, it's the greatest feeling. It is the greatest feeling in the world when you're, when we've, when I have the complete body of work and it's done, you know, and you get to reminisce on the first rehearsal or the first note that, that was written to having a mastered album. Like there's nothing, you know, there's no feeling like that in the world. What is uh what is what does Anthony do to celebrate? So, when you finish the last day of the studio, you leave the studio. The record is done. What do you, what does Anthony do to celebrate? I'm just hoping there's some vegan food open wherever <laughs> wherever we wrote our. You're record. easy to please. You're easy to please. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it, yeah. dude. This has been this has been great. You and I have always had a very funny friendship. Um, I feel like this was a very uh straightforward kind of honest interview i think we uh-huh. did a good job of not kicking each other in the balls throughout yeah the yeah, yeah yeah just um, not having to be a constant rib sesh yeah exactly so thanks for doing this uh, i look forward to part two down the line thanks bud i i appreciate i appreciate you having me on And that is our show. Thank you so much, Anthony, for coming on. And thank you for listening. This episode was produced, edited, and made to sound so great by my boy, Ryan Rainbow. Shout out to him, always and forever. And reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now. If you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, you can also find the link in the episode description. Thank you so much. Take care. Be good. Bye-bye.